I'm going to get right into it. We're going to go through the story of David today, but I can't start really the story of David without giving a, a little bit of a shout out to Jonathan. You see, Jonathan is like the John the Baptist of the Old Testament. And maybe you've never really considered the story of Jonathan or read it. It's in the first part of 1 Samuel. There are just a few little mentions of him, sort of like at the beginning of the Gospels where it mentions John the Baptist a few times. Uh, Remember, John the Baptist is the one who said, hey, I'm not the Messiah, but there he is. And when John was in prison and was wondering where Jesus was in his life, he said, I must become less and less, and he must become more and more. And so, if you're, you know, some people have a life verse. I don't know if I really do, but if I did, like, that would be my life verse. Like, that's, that's what I want for myself, uh, that I would become less and less, and that he would become more and more. Jonathan is the crown prince. He is going to be the next king of Israel. And uh, he is no schmo. Uh, there's a story in 1 Samuel 14 where he and one other guy, his armor bearer, they decide to take out this Philistine outpost that's up on a high hill, a very strategically defensible position. He's outnumbered. And he says to his armor bearer something sort of like this. Well, maybe God will be with us. I don't know. God can do anything. So let's go. And he goes up there and he defeats all the Philistines. That's, if you don't know the the Old Testament very well, that's like the arch enemy of the Israelites, the Philistines, okay? And so uh, he goes up and he takes out this outpost and uh, he's celebrated uh, as a mighty warrior. Uh, Jonathan has all the tools to become the next king of Israel. But he sees some things happening in the nation, and he sees some things happening in the life of a young man named David. And he realizes that God has anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And so he slowly just abdicates the throne. He slowly just walks away and hands things over to David. He commits treason on behalf of David, who Saul, Jonathan's father, is trying to kill at one point. Strange, don't you think? Very strange for the crown prince to like be trying to give his kingdom to another person. You see what I'm saying? John the Baptist was the most popular rabbi of his day, way more popular than Jesus. He says, I must become less and less. He must become more and more. John the Baptist was so popular, he was arrested by King Herod and beheaded because he was a threat to the monarchy. So that's Jonathan. Just sort of a Side note, but I think quite an amazing hero. If you haven't read the stories of Samuel and Jonathan, 1 Samuel, you need to make that a read. Put it on your reading list. Start a book club. 
uh, really amazing stories. I'm guessing there's a story that you know about David. Uh, this story is really widely popular outside the church. This is one of the best known stories from the Bible. Can anybody tell me what it is? David and Goliath. Even you know it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to have us take a little bit of a different look at that story today. Uh, I grew up listening to this story, like literally listening to it. Uh, almost every night that I went to, to bed, like somewhere between four and seven years old, I probably listened to the story of David slaying Goliath, I'm going to say th at least 300 times. So I know this story pretty well. But, uh, does anybody know what a cassette tape is? Did I mention that? Yeah, a few people in here. Do you know that cassette? the last time GM had a cassette deck in one of their vehicles was 1999? Do you know the iPhone was invented in 2000, or produced in 2006? That's kind of a small gap. So I'm really not as old as you think I am. Yeah, think about it. All right. So as I'm listening to this cassette, the story on cassette tape... It's, and I'm a child laying in bed and, you know, kind of thinking of how this all went down using my imagination. Uh, I got the idea that David was a young boy, like maybe a 12-year-old. Later on, as I, I grew up, um, I was told from different people that he was probably a teenager. Well, I'm going to take us to... 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we'll start in verse 14. It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. That's a theological conversation right there. Um, some of Saul's servants said to him, a tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. Uh, there's another theological discussion right there. He will play soothing music and you will be well again. All right, Saul said. Find me someone who plays well and bring him here. Uh, remember, Saul as king has disobeyed God and so God has removed his blessing from Saul, right? That's what happens when we enter into disobedience. Uh, God is not going to be present with sin. Right? So he has removed his blessing. And he has moved his blessing to David, who he sees has a heart after him. Uh, one of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he is a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He is also a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. Now, that's an interesting resume for a harpist. Uh, maybe this is because, you know, David is maybe has his hand at work in the writing of this book. I don't know. Um, but here are some things that it that it 
uh, you know, that, that we should think about. One is um, the use of music to defeat the enemy. Uh, Martin Luther said, second to the word of God, the Bible, music, and he was referring to the music of the church, worship music, music is the second best weapon. Isn't that interesting? We're not Lutheran, but we can still respect some of the things he said. Um, another thing to note here is that it says that David is a brave warrior. Now, this is before David kills Goliath. He is known already as a brave warrior. Isn't that interesting? It says that he is a man of war. Isn't that interesting? So I don't think we are talking about a teenage boy. Now he's a young man. He's not married. So uh, we know he's very likely somewhere under the age of 40. Uh, we think he's probably pretty young, but probably not a teenager. Right? And this is why. It says, and he has good judgment. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love the Bible. Uh, it says he is also a fine-looking young man, so there we know he's young. And here's the most important part, and the Lord is with him. Or you couldn't serve in the king's court unless you were decent-looking, right? That was part of the program. So we know David's not ugly, right? He's, he's acceptable in the court. But the most important thing is, and the Lord is with him. They know that God is with David. The things David does turn out well. So, how does that change the story of David and Goliath? It changes it a lot for me, at least from when I was a child, listening to that cassette tape of the children's story version. It changes a lot for me. Um, Let's, uh, let's move forward in the story uh, just a little bit. Chapter 17. Um, you know, if you're, not, if you're not familiar with the story, I'll fill in uh, just a few gaps to bring you along. Um, the Philistines uh, were famous for having... Uh, uh, a few towns in their area um, where uh, the, the progeny of the Nephilim, whew, now I'm getting really into the weeds, were these giants. And uh, these, these were huge men. They were incredibly intimidating. They were uh, of such a size that, remember when the people of Israel were thinking about going into Canaan and taking the area that God uh, prescribed for them, they went and they saw these giants, these massive men, and they said, there is no way we are going to win battle against these guys. Okay, so these, these men are huge. Now, uh, Goliath is a descendant, and uh, the general idea is that these giants are getting a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller. Goliath uh, ends up being nine feet, six inches tall. Now, I grew up with a brother who is six 10, I think it is highest height, very ugly. And so I've always, I've always considered that to be sort of like a, a, 
a Goliath thing. But this is, this is just next level. Nine feet, six inches tall. Uh, a massive man. Not, not a toothpick. Not like Minute Bowl, if anybody knows who that is. But this guy is massive, okay? So there's a confrontation between the Philistines and the Israelites. Uh, they pretty much go to war sort of every, every spring, right? It's time to go to battle and sort of divvy up land. And, you know, who, who's, who, who came out of winter the strongest, right? And so uh, it's time to go to battle. And so they meet in this area. There's, a, you know, two sort of hills. And then there's a valley in the middle. And they're going to clash in the bottom of this valley. They're going to both run down the hills and just go, go at it. Or what they can do to save a lot of lives, potentially, is they can send out a champion uh, from each side. And whoever wins that champion match will, will be the winner. And that could end things right there. Or... Whoever wins could decide not to honor that and just go ahead and attack the other side. It would be just like a really good omen, like our best guy just slaughtered your best guy. We are totally going to win this battle. It's like a major morale booster, right? Like if your wrestling team was going up against their wrestling team and your champion went out and just slaughtered the other guy, I mean, that's a pretty good way to start things off, right? So that's kind of the setting that we're in. Uh, chapter 17, I'm going to start reading in verse 32. Um, David has been, he's been asking questions about this scenario where Goliath the champion comes out and challenges Israel. Basically calls Israel a bunch of dogs, uh, which was a really bad insult in those days. I don't know how it you know, fits in our our schedule of insults, but uh, a dog was, was pretty bad. And so he's calling them dogs. He's telling them that their God is fake. He's telling them that they're worthless and useless and just weak individuals, and they have no chance against him. And the Israelites are believing him because he's nine feet, six inches tall, and massive. Right? The spear he carries is bigger than most of the Israelites. I mean, this thing is just massive. So David is going around the camp asking, hey, uh, why are we letting this guy do this? What, by the way, what's the reward for killing this guy? That's a pretty nice reward. Uh, David's whole family will become tax-free. I mean, that's pretty good. And he also gets one of the king's daughters. He gets to marry into royalty. Uh, so this is, a, this is a pretty good situation for whoever goes out and kills Goliath. So he's asking this question. He's going around, kind of making a little stir. He's confronted by his older brother about this sort of ambitiousness that he is showing. But eventually he gets called into a conversation with Saul. And that's where we'll pick up the story. In Saul's courtroom, in his war tent... He says, don't worry about this Philistine. I'll go fight him. 
Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. That's interesting. And he's been a man of war since his youth. Okay? Saul's saying, "Mm, you're not looking too manly, David. Uh, I've been looking at Saul a lot. Um, By the way, it's interesting to know that King Saul was actually the largest Israelite. And uh, earlier it says he was actually the best looking too. The Bible's funny sometimes. I mean, we, we have Saul who is head and shoulders. Like, he's a big dude. Intimidating. If somebody was going to go out and take on this giant man-to-man, it should probably have been Saul. Uh, <clears throat> There's no way you can fight this Philistine, right? But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to seal the lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. Just imagine that scene. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. You want to call me a boy again? Uh, I have done this to both lions and bears. We can think probably of a good-sized black bear, right? David never faced a grizzly like we real Alaskan men do. <laughs> lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the jaws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Uh, not only am I not afraid, but I know God is on my side. Um, so finally, Paul consented. Isn't it interesting that David needs to go ask permission to fight Goliath? That Saul needs to consent. The reason is because this has massive implications for whether or not the Philistines go into slavery or whether or not they are the conquerors. This actually has a lot of implications for King Saul himself. King Saul knows that he does not have the heart, the courage, the bravery to go and fight Goliath. In many ways, he is trusting David with his life. He has become convinced that David is Israel's best hope for killing Goliath. Isn't that interesting? Well, there are some things you should know about David. David was not a teenager that uh, just happened to spend a lot of time out playing with his little slingshot. Tink, tink. David was a slinger. A slinger 
uh, well, to give you some context, was actually better than an archer in warfare. So you'd have your melee troops up front. Those are the guys who all they cared about was running into something. And then behind those guys, you would have your archers. Right? Archers had an accuracy in these days of a maximum of, of about 200 yards. Uh, so you'd have your archers back. They'd be following behind the melee troops. And guess who would be behind, be behind the archers? The slingers. They had a range of 400 yards. Right? That's almost a quarter mile. That's a long, long ways off. Um, the Bible tells us that there was a group of 700 Benjamites who were left-handed slingers. <laughs> Again, the left-handed people keep coming in. I don't know what's going on, but apparently they were deadly accurate. They were famously accurate. Do you imagine 700 stones being thrown into a group of oncoming soldiers? Uh, now, it says that he went down to a riverbed and he chose five smooth stones. And as a kid, I always thought, I, w- I always thought anytime you go to a riverbed and choose stones, you're choosing skipping stones, like the disc type that skim across the water very well. If you don't know how to skip a rock on a river, please let me know. I can give you instruction. But these are not the types of rocks that David picked up. He picked up round rocks. Uh, There have been a lot of archaeological digs that have discovered, like, uh, massive stockpiles of round rocks. In some cases, uh, they were... The ammunition was made like little uh, like clay pottery balls, and they were made in different sizes. Each army would try to sort of universalize the size of stone that they had. That makes sense, right? So that any slinger could pick up any stone, and it would be, you know, basically this, this, the same, right? Um, Roman historians talk about slingers that were so accurate that it was not a matter of whether or not they would hit you in the head. It was a matter of where in the head they wanted to hit you. Getting the idea? Now we know from our day that a pitcher throwing a baseball without the extra speed of a sling can throw somewhere between 100 and 118 miles per hour. Does anybody know baseball trivia? Anybody watch baseball anymore? Nobody. 105? That's a good guess. Is that Roger Clemens or Nolan Ryan? Do you know? (laughs) Okay, nice, okay. You guys should start watching baseball. It's a great sport. So that is just with... Regular human mechanics. And when you add in the sling, you get a lot more velocity. So does this change the story of David and Goliath for you? David knows he's going to win this battle. He is confident that he is going to win this battle. He has grabbed a bear by its jaw and clubbed it. I don't know if he clubbed it to death, but clubbed it enough to get a lamb out of its jaws. David is no lightweight. David has got some serious moxie and courage. 
chapter 17, starting in verse 48. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Goliath is a huge man. He is not a slinger. He is designed for one type of warfare, close combat. He needs to get within reach of David. David knows that he is safe. There is no way Goliath can catch him. David is quick. David runs after lions and bears. He is fast. Some people think that uh, Goliath was actually a little bit blind, maybe close to blind. At least had poor sight. Uh, Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling, hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in. Now you're getting an idea of the force of that stone. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, again, watched baseball, but you may at least know this, that they, when they're batting, they actually wear helmets. And this side of their face is covered because they do not want to get hit with that baseball because it will kill them. Um, Where was I? This stone sank in. Thank you. And Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. This is a massive sword. Teenagers not likely to do this. And David used it to kill him and cut off his head. A little bit gruesome. Um... It says after this that Jonathan uh, made a friendship covenant with David. Now remember, Jonathan is no lightweight. Jonathan has some serious courage. And he sees in David somebody who he can follow. He sees in David somebody who, who gets it who gets that God is on their side. And so he is unafraid. He has seen his father quake in fear and lose courage. And so he makes this covenant with David. I'm with you. This is the kind of kingdom that Israel needs. This is the kind of king we need to follow. David really does exceptionally well. Saul puts him in charge of a thousand soldiers and uh, they are just going around and dominating the Philistines. They're like the special ops group for Israel. Uh, I mean, they are doing it right. So much so that uh, the ladies in Israel are starting to sing songs about Saul, just to be polite, but really about David. David is quickly becoming the national hero. And Saul 
Saul is no idiot. He sees what is going on. He sees Jonathan's affinity for David. He sees danger looming for the future of the monarchy. And so he attempts to kill David twice by sort of going mad, raging like a lunatic and throwing his spear at him. But David, remember, is quick and is able to move out of the way. Eventually, uh, David is uh, forced to sort of go into exile, right? He has this little uh, band of merry men gather around him, those who are disenchanted, disenfranchised, and they turn out to be sort of uh, great warriors that gather around David. But they're exiled, really, from Israel. They have to go into Philistine territory, and David has to act like he himself has gone insane in order to save his life and find favor with the Philistine king. He goes so far as to urinate on that city's walls in public in front of everybody in order to show that he has gone mad. Eventually, Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. And the people of Judah come and ask David to be their king. After seven years of war with Israel, the northern tribes, eventually David is made king of all of Israel. David, as king of all Israel, deals with the Philistines, he deals with the Moabites, he deals with the Ammonites, and peace is brought to the land. Things are going exceptionally well for David. God covenants with David that he will always have a descendant of David on the throne. It really doesn't get better than that. To have, as a king, God tell you, hey, just so you know, I'm going to personally watch over this monarchy and make sure that it is eternal. Whoa! Kind of a big deal. David's mind is blown. He says over and over again, God, there is no way... I deserve this. David decides to take a little break and soak it all in. His administration is intact. Politically, he's on top. Militarily, he's well established. And so he decides to take it easy. That's where we skip to 2 Samuel. Chapter 11 says, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. That's when you know you've made it, when you're walking on the roof of your palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Hmm. Um, This is where things go really poorly. Not just for David, but for Bathsheba and especially for her husband, Uriah. As David was going around defeating enemies, God put around David some special men. 
at the end of 2 Samuel, they're listed as the three and the 30. And the three are, were just absolutely extraordinary, mind-blowing, tough guys, right? These are like three little mini Samsons. And uh, like it, it, it sort of gives us the impression that David and those three could have like just taken on a whole army. And then there was this group of 30, and they were sort of slightly less uh, awesome in battle, but they have incredible exploits like killing 300 men uh, in, you know, one scenario by themselves. I don't know if you've ever thought about doing that before, but I'm thinking that takes a lot of effort in hand-to-hand combat. This was just, you know, they weren't the three, this was the 30, but there were so... And, and actually, there was more than 30. They just called them the 30. So the whole total was 37 men. God had, God had brought around David to be like this incredible team of conquerors. Uriah, the wife of the husband of Bathsheba, was one of those 37. David goes down a very dark hole. David has Bathsheba come to his palace. They do what you think they might do. And Bathsheba becomes pregnant. So David <laughs> brings Uriah the Hittite home on some R&R, hoping that things will happen, the whole thing can be covered up. Doesn't work because Uriah is so devoted to David that he refuses to go in and be with his wife because his army is at war and he will not receive any of the pleasures of being home. Incredible integrity. David goes to plan B because he's already gone into the wormhole. He goes to plan B. He tells Joab to set Uriah up in a trap to withdraw, to leave him on his own. And even though he is one of the 37 mightiest men of Israel, they pin Uriah up against a wall in an absolutely overwhelming situation and he is killed in battle. David is now an adulterer and a murderer. As soon as Bathsheba's time of mourning is done for Uriah, David invites her back to the palace and she becomes one of his wives. This is a man after God's own heart. How could that be? Sometimes people are deceived by the enemy. I don't know if you're aware of this part of the story or not, but sometimes people who love God dearly are deceived by the enemy. Sometimes humans are frail and weak and in need of the true king. David, who, full of courage, full of confidence in God, full of spiritual zeal, full of righteousness, slays Goliath and completes the conquering of Israel. Has a moment where 
he's weak. And once he falls into that trap, he tries to struggle to get out of that trap and ends up committing murder because he is ashamed of what he has done. There's no way he can face Uriah and confess his sin. So God sends Nathan, the prophet, into David's courtroom to tell David a story. A story of deep injustice that David becomes irate over and wants to see the man who has committed this crime. And Nathan, the prophet, points his finger at David and says, you are that man. And I'm going to read to you the most, uh, the most important verse in David's life. Chapter 12 and verse 13, it says, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David has options. Remember, he is the king of Israel. If he, if he wants your daughter as his wife, she becomes his. David's power is virtually unlimited, short of a coup, which he staved off twice after this happened because God allowed some things to happen in his life. Even though God forgave him, there were still some consequences to bear. David could have ordered for Nathan the prophet to be killed for accusing him of such madness. But he does not. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Maybe, maybe you identify with that. I know I do. One of the reasons, uh, the bigger reason why I love the story of David is, is this. I mean, I, I like the giant falling, don't get me wrong. And I could put that cassette tape in again and listen to that story all day long. I like when giants fall. But I identify much more with this part of the story. And maybe you identify with that as well. Maybe it's appropriate for you to say right now in your heart, I have sinned against the Lord. There's good news for you. <laughs> There's really incredible news for you. In fact, it's, it's something we call the good news. Right? I mean, really, this, the story is all about this thing. And that is that Jesus came and he died for us and became the atoning sacrifice for us. He took away all the punishment of sin and took it upon himself so that you and I might have freedom in Christ. So that you and I might be able to say to God, forgive me, and know that we would be forgiven, that we will be forgiven. And to just prove that God is who he said he was, Jesus raised from the dead on the third day. And as Christians, we believe in these things. 
that Jesus is the Savior of the world. There's a story later on in David's life. Um, Absalom has uh, this is just weird to say, but he's uh, David had lots of wives. Um, Absalom ended up raping one of his stepsisters. Um, so David exiled Absalom from the region. Uh, Joab was a fan of Absalom and wanted Absalom back. And so he sent a, he sent a grandma in to speak to David and to talk to David about Reconciliation. And as part of her speech, he says this, and I believe that it truly reveals the heart of God. 2 Samuel uh, 13, or 14 and verse 14. As a part of her speech, he says, All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, He devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. This is the heart of the Father. This is the heart of the Father for us. Right? In one of the Psalms, David tells us that God is singing songs of victory around us. Just just walking around us and just singing songs of victory around us. And the idea is that he, you know, David is trying to tell us about a God who absolutely loves us, knows that we will fail, and is there to give us forgiveness. This image is of God like sitting in his shop, like finding different ways, his strategy room. Okay, how can I bring this person back? How can I bring this person back? Oh, let's try this. Let's do this. He's devising ways, like that's the work of God, to bring us back to him, to bring us back to him, to bring us back to him. That is what he is doing. Hopefully that replaces the image of God standing over you with a large stick, ready to strike with consequences when you step out of line. He wants you back. He doesn't care where you've been or what you're currently doing. He just wants you back. Just come back. It doesn't matter. what you've done, what level of guilt there is. He just wants you back. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would fill us with incredible courage to do the things that you have called us to do, that your spirit would anoint us, would be upon us to fulfill the purpose for which we have been created. Father, we ask that you would forgive us of our sin and we celebrate today that you are faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we pray that we would do everything we can to help you in your work of devising ways to bring people back. 
Anoint us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Cole, Colander, if you would come on down. Uh, worship team, if you guys want to join us. I don't know what you guys thought this was. But it is our baptismal. And Cole wants to be baptized. Cole, we're just going to do some logistics. This stool floats, so you're going to have to push it down before you try to sit on it. Uh, Cole, if you just want to stand here. Come on over here and face, face the audience. This is a tradition of the church, you know. We've got to grill you a little bit. Cole, in keeping with the example of Jesus, you have presented yourself this day that you might receive the sacrament of baptism. Baptism is not itself the door to salvation, but rather is an outward sign of the new birth which God has wrought in your heart. It proclaims to all the world that you have taken Christ Jesus as the Lord of your life, and that it is your purpose always to obey him. In order for us to hear your testimony of what God has done for you and what we may or, and that we may know that you understand the significance of the step you're taking, I'm going to ask you a long question. You ready? Okay. Do you believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ, the Son, suffered in your place on the cross, that he died but rose again, that he now sits at the Father's right hand until he returns to judge all people at the last day? And do you believe in the Holy Scriptures as the inspired Word of God, that by the grace of God, Every person has the ability and responsibility to choose between right and wrong. And those who repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are justified by faith. If so, say, I do. do. All right. Um, Come over here, Cole. I need you to get in this side. How's that? Not too bad, huh? All right. Okay. All set. Turn your glasses off. Let's do it. I'll get all wet. Here we go. Please join me as we pray for Cole. Uh, Father, thank you so much for just the incredible person that you have made Cole to be. Uh, Thank you for his family and the Christian teaching that he has received. We thank you, Lord, that he has been paying attention and that he has decided to follow you, to give his life to you, to proclaim loyalty to you. So, Father, we pray for your great blessing upon him. We baptize Cole in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. (laughs) All right. Get up. <laughs> yeah, not a great system. <laughs> I'll put that one on the floor. You take this one. 
All right. Way to go. Congratulations, buddy. Uh, if you guys will please stand. I think we're going to sing our way out. <laughs>